That process of going from what's called exceptional information, which is a weird thing, through a plot twist, which is also known as an environmental shift, that's what activates the creativity in your head. That's what makes you more creative. That's why if you read Gladwell's book and you disagree with everything he says, he's still winning. He's still making you more creative. He's making you more like Gladwell. That's why he cannot be defeated. Welcome to season two of the Book Society podcast. Yay, it's going to be great. This interview with Angus Fletcher kind of started and took off immediately. He's super smart, super articulate. We had a lot of fun just jamming with each other. And so I didn't even really introduce the podcast until 20 minutes into the interview. So I'm starting now to just say hello. Season two, we're going to have a lot of authors from the Miami Book Fair who have written new books, including Maggie Smith, Joshua Jay, How Magicians Think. He's going to be on. He's awesome. Russ Choma, who is an editor at Mother Jones. He picked a really esoteric and cool book. So all of these are coming up in the next couple of weeks and months. Special thanks to the Miami Book Fair for setting up so many awesome interviews, and we'll be plugging them and thanking them every chance we get. And I'm also going to go to the Miami Book Fair, and I'll do like a field report or something from there, where I'll just talk to whoever wants to talk to me and give you guys the feeling of what it's like to be at a book fair, because I don't know. Season two is going to be fun. Now here is Angus Fletcher. I mean, this is the key to creativity, which in a way is what I've sort of come on here to talk about with Malcolm Gladwell, is the ability of your brain to be in two places at the same time focused on two different things at the same time. That's what differentiates us and what kind of enables us to generate new stuff is to be in ourselves and outside of ourselves and somewhere else all at the same time. That's an interesting perspective. And I think that you and I are similar kinds of artists where you have several professions that you're doing at the highest level. I think for you and I, that seems very natural, but I definitely know creatives who really only do one thing. Musicians come to mind. Their mission in life is to play the cello and that's what they do. Well, music is interesting, and you and I have kind of talked about this, and I'm not an expert on music. It's the one kind of creativity that I don't understand. I mean, music and math, I think, are similar in that you can have a much more logical brain, whereas with many other types of creativity, your brain needs to be kind of a mashup of two different things that don't really get along, and it's the tension between those two things. But I don't know enough about music to know whether that happens in the head of a cellist. Well, music and math, this is actually a really interesting part of Outliers to me. So I've read this book several times. It's brilliant. As a writer of narrative nonfiction, I don't know if anyone does it better than Malcolm Gladwell. It's sort of a masterclass in that style. But the thing that jumped out to me is exactly what you were talking about. There's a story near the end about math and a professor at Berkeley who shows this video of a non-math student figuring out that a straight line has undefined slope and that she spends 20 minutes figuring this out and that his observation is that people who are good at math are just people who spend time trying to figure it out. So most people will give up after two minutes of trying to figure out what a straight line is slope wise. But this person went on for 20 minutes and music is the exact same thing. If you're willing to put in the time, you will figure it out. Angus, you could today decide to become a cellist. And in 20 years, you'd be a decent cellist if that's what you did every day, all day for 20 years. Here's the thing, though. I mean, I would maybe believe that about music and math, but I think deep creativity, you use the phrase figure it out. There is no way to figure it out because there's no answer. Creativity is basically generating the new. And I do think with math, you can figure it out because math is logic and logic essentially has a series of pre-programmed stages. I mean, you can start with Euclid and then get all the way up to AI. And maybe that's possible with music. I really don't know enough about it. Maybe you could kind of start with a wind flute and then end up with Beethoven. But most kinds of creativity, there's no figure it out. It's a huge mix of happenstance, originality, and luck. And it makes things that would never exist otherwise. Like if you weren't there in that particular moment, it would never happen again. 
I don't know if I would agree with that, actually. So I think that part of what Gladwell is talking about is exactly the opposite of that, that these types of things, the creativity and like, I guess you're right, if Bill Gates weren't there, Microsoft would probably not have been called Microsoft. But I think someone who had a similar opportunity would have invented a personal computer. It might have looked a little bit different. Well, this gets to the question of how creative is it to invent a personal computer? And I'm going to agree with you that it's quite possible that someone would have invented the personal computer without there being Bill Gates. I also have to say that nothing that Microsoft has ever done is really that creative. It seems like they always come into the space after someone else has already invented it, and then they just rip it off. Like, oh, Windows. No one invented that before. Oh, the Xbox. No one ever invented that before. But I mean, I think when you're talking about genuine creativity, I mean, just for example, Van Gogh. I mean, do you think someone would have painted like Van Gogh without Van Gogh? It seems highly unlikely to me. Do you think someone would have written... Hamlet or I Know How the Caged Bird Sings if Shakespeare or Maya Angelou hadn't been around, it seems highly unlikely to me. Now, you might say, well, someone would have written a book. Yeah, just the same way that someone would have been president. But when we're talking about creativity, we are talking about something which is not predictable. And because it's not predictable, therefore, unlike the answer to a math equation, there's no way for it to occur without some kind of idiosyncrasy. Yeah, this gets into like some butterfly effect stuff, right? Obviously, the world is richer for having Hamlet in it. But there were a lot of playwrights that were amazing at that time. And maybe another one of them would have broken through. Van Gogh was part of a school. He was the apotheosis of that style, maybe. But if he hadn't done it, maybe someone else would have done it. If Michelangelo hadn't painted the Sistine Chapel, maybe someone else would have done it. But then I guess to argue against myself, looking at the statue of David in Florence the last time I was there, there's something about it that's just like, this thing is so amazing that I can't imagine it not existing. I also can't imagine anyone creating it. It's just too amazing. Yeah. So my expertise, such as it is, or where I started out is Shakespeare. My advisor at Yale, his expertise was everything that Shakespeare didn't write. It was written in the same period. <laughs> and so he had read a bazillion plays that weren't by Shakespeare. And I can tell you, because I was his advisee, I read a lot of those plays. And it's very obvious that they're not Shakespeare. And they're nowhere near like Shakespeare. And that's not to say that Shakespeare was better or greater. It's just to say that he was very, very unique. There's something very distinct about him. And what's also fascinating about Shakespeare is that you can trace the lineage. Van Gogh read Hamlet. Steve Jobs read King Lear. Einstein read Hamlet through Goethe. It's more than a butterfly effect. There are methods of creativity. Certain people get them. Certain people use them to be more creative, and they pass through their works to other people. But it's always that blend of method and idiosyncrasy, which I think makes it different from math, because I think there is no idiosyncrasy in math. I don't think you and I could sit down at a calculus problem and have our personality affect how we solved it. Whereas I do think with creativity, we can, and it can be genuinely fundamental to the work and make the work genuinely different. I agree with you. I don't know if I agree with you that math isn't creative. And I'll tell you why. It was a previous podcast guest, Dr. Daniel Murphitt, who we would just call Dan, but you're a doctor too, right? I am technically, yeah. Yeah, you're all doctors. Everyone on this podcast except for me is a doctor, more or less. But anyway, he and I are buddies, and he talks to me all the time about beautiful math. And that when you get to the highest abstract levels of math, there are multiple ways to solve a problem. And, you know, an example for me, this is an easy pop culture example, Godel's incompleteness theorem, which is really kind of a refutation of Russell's attempt to make math complete. And he said, well, you know, you can make math as specific as you want, but you're still going to be able to find this little loophole in the system where you can make something be true and not true at the same time. I don't know, that to me is creative. It's perfectly possible and plausible and reasonable that no one would have ever come up with that. Well, it's creative to see that that's a problem that needs to be solved. 
but I'm not sure that the solution to the problem is creative. In other words, to imagine that the problem needs to be solved, there's a huge amount of flexibility. I mean, Einstein's theory of relativity is an example here. To imagine that the theory needs to be solved, there's a huge amount of creativity involved there. But once you solve the problem, there's only one way to solve it. You and I can direct Hamlet differently. Shakespeare wrote Hamlet two different ways, at least. And so that's where the human component comes in. It's like, what do I want to use math to do? That's very creative. But once you're there, I think you have to answer it based on the way the numbers go. Otherwise, you're violating the laws of logic. You can't have two plus two equal five. Hi, welcome to Book Society. We are 20 minutes into a conversation with Angus Fletcher that has just taken off. And so Angus Fletcher is a PhD. He's a Yale grad. He is the author of Wonderworks. He is a screenwriter. He is a scientist. Is that accurate? Yeah, sure. He is many, many important and intelligent things. And above all, he is a smart, interesting, nice guy who I'm privileged to have on the podcast. This is a Book Society first where we read his book and we did an episode on his book. It's the Judith to Pray episode, which you can go back and listen to. And then I reached out to him because I loved it so much. And now here he is. So you are the first author to have come to the podcast through a recommendation from someone who didn't know you. It's a huge honor, man. Yeah, well, you're the perfect person for it. So the book that Angus Fletcher picked was Outliers because he has a connection to Outliers that he's going to explain. And I know you have a connection to Malcolm Gladwell personally, too, at least on some level. And you were on his podcast, right? Yeah, I was on Revisionist History, taking down Disney together because we have a mutual interest in having more interesting stories in the world. And maybe that means a little bit less of a single giant megapolis just manufacturing the same fairy tale over and over and over again. Part of me thinks you should just give the people what they want. But then the other part of me thinks that they don't necessarily always know what they want. Because I love watching all the Disney stuff. And I know that when I'm watching the Avengers movie, I don't read it the same way I read Anna Karenina. It's a different thing. And I don't mind that it is a different thing. But I guess if you think that that is what story is, then yeah, you run into some trouble. Yeah, well, there's nothing wrong with people having the choices to do what they want, obviously. But I think the main concern with Disney is that it's a kind of invasive species that arrives, cannibalizes everything else in the marketplace, then turns it into Disney. So I have a kind of biology background. And what I believe is that for life to thrive and flourish, there has to be an organic diversity about it. So like when you go to the forest, you don't want every tree to be a Disney. You want there to be pines and maples and redwoods and the same thing with flowers. And so the concern that I have with Disney is that essentially it has a very strict and bounded sense of what constitutes a story. And it relentlessly recycles that over and over and over again. And when it exhausts our attention, it finds something else to take and suck into that model. That's basically my concern with Disney. Not that I begrudge them the right to exist. And I've worked for Disney and I've taken money from Disney, so I don't want to appear holier than thou. I mean, I feel like almost anyone who's successful in this world ends up getting a knock on their door and working for Disney. But yeah, that was sort of my entree to being connected to Malcolm Gladwell. And my own background, which I should just say is very weird and unique, is like I start out basically in neuroscience. In neuroscience at the time, everyone thinks the brain is a computer. It works like a computer. We have to kind of understand computers and make the brain work better like a computer. It's all about taking in data and memorizing it and crunching data and so on and so forth. And I was just realizing that my brain did not operate like a computer at all. I did not have the ability to take on a lot of data. I wasn't very logical. And I started to realize actually what my brain was, was quirky, which is another way of saying it was creative. It sort of fixed onto a couple random facts and then leveraged them into wild ideas that allowed me to build new stuff and go in new directions. And I started thinking to myself, someone really should study this creativity thing from a neuroscience perspective and nothing about the brain. 
as a computer, but as a source of all these ideas. And so that was why I ended up going and I became a specialist. I got my PhD in Shakespeare because I thought, who's more creative than artists? And so I should study them. And that's kind of been my journey. I got connected with Gladwell because he's obviously himself enormously creative. Whether you agree with his books, or disagree with his books, his style of writing, his mode of thinking is distinctly him. And of course, that would explain why both of us have this thing with Disney is because Disney is much more focused on giving you what you want, literally. It's like when you go to McDonald's, they don't like surprise you with what's in the burger. You know that that burger is exactly the same as every other burger, even if you ate it in like Wichita the day before and are now in New Orleans, right? It's the same burger every time, everywhere. And so that's the contract that McDonald's makes. That's the contract that Disney makes. Obviously, Gladwell and I are a little too loose cannon for that. I mean, that's the formula for success is consistent mediocrity. Seriously. I mean, you go to a Starbucks, nothing at a Starbucks blows your mind, but it's the same all over the world. I always thought of Disney as a little bit more adventurous in some ways. I mean, Pixar, I guess, is more adventurous. Yeah. And I've had the chance to work with a lot of people at Pixar. They are. It's fascinating to me. Your definition of success, by the way, is literally the opposite of Gladwell's. I mean, your definition of it is the non-outlier. It's like you arrive and it's exactly the inlier. I don't mean that that's my own definition for success for myself, but the formula for like, if you want to change the world and be Steve Jobs, you have a one in a billion chance of doing that. If you want to make a ton of money selling cardboard boxes, I mean, the cardboard box industry is about three times bigger than the sporting event industry in the United States, but nobody's beating down your doors for tickets to a cardboard box factory. You just kind of blew my mind there because it didn't even occur to me that cardboard boxes came from anywhere. I just thought that they just sort of arrived. But you must be right. Someone must be making all these cardboard boxes somewhere. And particularly with Amazon now, I feel like literally everything goes in at least three boxes nowadays. So that person out there is a billionaire. I think I started thinking about this stuff because I worked for Michael Levine, who is a composer, and his greatest hit is the Give Me a Break Kit Kat song which is a piece of music that I never thought of having been written. I just assumed someone invented Kit Kats and they broke it open and it sang that song. And that was just what it was. But no, someone sat down and wrote that. So this right here is Outliers. This is the genius of Outliers. And this is, of course, the genius of you. The genius of Outliers is to take these idiosyncratic, completely off the wall examples, fueled by personality and individuals, and then crack them open into these creative moments that link together the secret of success. I have so many people who, when I tell them I like Gladwell or I like Outliers, like, oh, you know that everything he says is wrong. It's not correct. You know, if you do something for 10,000 hours, you won't necessarily be good at it or what have you. And I'm like, the main problem I think that people have when they read Gladwell is they think that he's trying to communicate a thesis statement, that he's trying to make a claim. He basically just flat out says, over and over and over again, my definition of success is the opportunity to have the success and then a little bit of those first characteristics, such as desire or whatever, to take advantage of that opportunity. It's just opportunity, basically. Why did he write a 300-page book of which the basic thesis was opportunity matters? You can't be successful on your own. There's no reason to write that book. That idea is obvious. What is the point of the book? The point of the book is to take you through a series of stories that will make you more successful if you read them. And so how do every one of those stories work? They work just like your stories. They start with some completely bizarre, out of nowhere character or events, and then they capture your attention and your imagination, they pull you along, and then at the end they do a hard twist where they're like, you didn't know it, but this is where this was going. And you're like, wait, what, mind blown. And it's that process of being hooked by a random detail 
And then going through a plot twist, if you put your brain in a brain scanner, I mean, this is what I do all day, that process of going from what's called exceptional information, which is a weird thing, through a plot twist, which is also known as an environmental shift, that's what activates the creativity in your head. That's what makes you more creative. That's why if you read Gladwell's book and you disagree with everything he says, he's still winning. He's still making you more creative. He's making you more like Gladwell. That's why he cannot be defeated. That's basically why I think you and I and everyone who reads Gladwell is Gladwell. One of the things that I noticed reading this book was I feel like what Gladwell's doing is taking narrative and showing you the reality of it, the difference between narrative and history, because I feel like what he's fighting against is it's a very obvious statement that everybody's life is complicated and that everybody's life is unique and everybody's success is due to many different factors, most of which are outside of their control. And I think we know that intellectually and we know that about the people that we know personally. But when you read a story of Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, you are tempted to map this Horatio Alger thing onto it. Their career path and their life was a straight line from genius to riches. That's literally not how anybody's life ever is. I think part of the reason that maybe people hate on him is because it's very obvious what he's saying. It's extremely obvious and no one ever thinks about it. Okay, it's extremely obvious, but I'll just point out what entity that we were just talking about maps exactly the same simple story over every narrative. It's Disney. I mean, Disney, it's like every story is the same story. It's a good person who's surrounded by mendacious mediocrity that's pulling them down. And then they have to triumph over it and realize their true greatness. That's Frozen, that's Snow White, that's Cinderella, that's every single story that they ever tell. It always has the same narrative. And so I think, yes, it's obvious, but we're scared to admit it. But that's not just the Disney narrative. That's really the narrative of Western culture. That's the Jesus narrative. You go up. You go down, you go all the way up. That's the shape of every story that we've been telling for 2,000 years. Yeah, yeah. And not just the shape, but what I was saying in terms of the character. So Disney's whole model of storytelling comes from Ayn Rand, right? And basically, it's this idea that there are a few special people in the world who have super talents. And what stops them from succeeding is the jealousy and envy of mediocre people who pull them down and try and stop them from being great. And so the Jesus narrative is also that same narrative. I mean, it's the most special person ever born. He's basically being kept down by Judas's jealousy or by this minor Roman pontiff or whomever. Yes, absolutely. That narrative gets told over and over and over and over and over and over again. And to your point, it's just baloney. Humans are social creatures. We achieve everything we achieve together. From the moment we're born, we live in a human landscape. We learn everything from other people. We achieve everything through other people. I mean, this is the thing that I learned from biology. It kind of blew my mind. So I should back up by saying that I was trained, like most people in this country, to have a kind of view that society came about when individuals came together and made a contract. And so you're kind of taught this. This is a Hobbesian view. This is a liberal view, this idea of the social contract. You and I are running around in a state of nature together. And then I'm like, you know, Lucas, it's hard out here in nature. And you're like, yeah, Angus, it is. And I'm like, we should form a team. Let's have some like laws and contracts. And you're like, yeah, let's do it. So this is what we're all taught, that the individual comes before society. It makes sense. The reality is in biology, it's the opposite way around. In biology, how does it happen that individuals form? Well, individuals form because I'm out by myself in a state of nature. What am I doing? I'm cooking, I'm fighting for myself, and I'm making my own clothes. And then I get together with you, and now all of a sudden we're a society, and I'm like, hey, you know what? I'll cook if you make the clothes. And you say, okay, and then you start to specialize. Then we get a third person, and she comes on, and then she becomes the soldier. And then we get a fourth person. And then we have, in time, so many different people that we can have different kinds of artists or different kinds of tailors. So it's society that actually generates the individual as opposed to the other way around. But 
Disney wants to keep feeding us this narrative, this Western narrative. It's up to people like you, Lucas, and me, and Malcolm Gladwell to break that down and say, no, man, it's obvious. Life is more complicated than that. It's not about one person rising to the top in a predestined arc. Instead, it's about all the stuff around us that matters and all that complexity. It's really interesting. So we started this conversation talking about Hamlet. Hamlet is the exact opposite, right? This was a friend of mine's thesis, but I'm going to steal it from him right now. His name's Stephen Gridley. We'll give him some credit. Brilliant playwright. If you ever are in New York, you get a chance to see something of his. You'll absolutely love it. So Hamlet and Death of a Salesman. So there were both these narratives that were like the anti-narratives of the prevailing beliefs of their time. Hamlet was debunking knowledge is power. Francis Bacon, that the most knowledgeable person is going to be the most powerful person because Hamlet is by a million miles the smartest person in the play and the only one who knows what's going on and still does not manage to prevail. Death of a Salesman is the exact same thing. It's that if you work hard enough, stay within the rules and you do your thing, you can achieve the American dream. And literally the exact opposite happens to Willie Loman. He does everything right and nothing works out. Even to the point of giving his son that same mentality, who does everything right and nothing works out. Both Shakespeare and Arthur Miller were extremely popular artists. And so there are these moments of artistic people and creative people breaking through and saying obvious things that need to be said, those things tend to resonate. So maybe there is something amazing about Disney feeding us this narrative over and over again, because it gives other creative people a springboard to jump off of. And then not for nothing, Angus, me and you have both worked for Disney. We got to pay the bills. I mean, they pay pretty well and they're easy to work with and they want you to be creative within the scope of what that means for them. That's a very Foucauldian idea, as I'm sure you know, that Disney is Darth Vader so that Luke Skywalker can exist. Without me, there would be no you, probably because I'm your father, but also because without no empire, there can be no rebellion. Literally, it's a logical fact. There can be no rebels without an empire. I have created you. I, Disney, have created the opportunity for uniqueness. What I love about that meeting of Hamlet, by the way, is that Hamlet actually comes out really before Bacon gets popular. Shakespeare is proleptically leaping into the future to dismantle it, while at the same time possibly also being Francis Bacon, because as we know, Shakespeare wasn't Shakespeare. Did you study with Harold Bloom? I did. I did. Or as you like to call him, Professor Boom. But yes, I studied (laughs) with Harold Bloom. The great thing about him is he's another rogue. He loves to do this thing, which he calls strong reading, which is where you basically go into the text with your own personality and wrestle with it. And this is this idea, which we get from the romantics, which I think is beautiful, is very non-logical, which is that creativity comes from struggling with something particularly something that you admire, as opposed to what logic has, which is the enlightenment, that actually things come in a mechanical, machine-like manner, where one thing leads automatically to another. Romanticism is like, no, you got to fight it. If you love something, you got to fight it. The best relationships are relationships that have a little volatility in them, and there's back and forth, and that creates growth, and that's life. That's the number one thing I always took from Bloom. But it's that relationship to the story and that passion for the story to the point that he actually becomes Falstaff. I mean, if you take a class with him, he like actually becomes Falstaff. And then all of a sudden you've got Falstaff in the room and he's like running around. Have you approached teaching differently, having read this book and thinking about the examples of how people might've ended up in your classroom? Do you see them differently? Do you approach them differently? Oh, so that's interesting. So once again, I don't actually take any content whatsoever from Blackwell. His idea that people are shaped by their environment and that sort of thing. I mean, that is something that I had drilled into my head as a biologist. So that wasn't surprising. What was surprising to me was the way that he can stimulate your brain by telling stories in these dynamic ways. I mean, the opening chapter is a complete red herring. 
I mean, he just wants to tell this story about <laughs> these doctors who journeyed to this idyllic town in central Pennsylvania or wherever in search of a cure for heart disease. You go through this entire story, you're like, this is fascinating. And at the end of the chapter, he's like one sentence where he's like, what they did for this totally different thing, I'm going to do for success. You're like, that has nothing to do with anything, man. What are you doing? But it's that boldness and it's that power of storytelling. And again, that's why I go to Gladwell, not because of the stuff in it. There'd be a much more efficient way to communicate information. My view, like the nadir of popular publishing or all those like business and self-help books where they just give you like three rules for living or something, which would be great if the human brain was capable of actually uploading a rule and then following it. Nothing against the rules themselves or the people who write those books, but it's just completely useless because no humans that I've ever encountered will ever be told a rule and then follow it. It's just useless. But what Gladwell is doing is he's training your brain to jump and to leap and to twist and to go into these bizarre, apparently minor details and then stretch out of them. And so the entire process of reading him is this extraordinary workout of getting beyond yourself and realizing what you're capable of when you shift your usual habits and expectations of order and normality. That has influenced my teaching insofar as I do not assign books in class. So, you know, I teach very high level English classes and I walk into these classrooms and I do not assign Hamlet, even though I'm theoretically an expert on Hamlet. Instead, I tell my students, you tell me what we're reading. Each of you is going to pick a different book and we're going to read that book. And I'm never going to have read that book before. And we're going to do that book. And so what that forces me to do is have an outlier experience every time I'm in the classroom, because it's always some book from left field and it's always some student from left field in terms of their perspective. And that's the kind of brain stretch that I get. And it creates the same stretch in the students because in a typical English class, you're just getting the professor for 13 weeks. Whereas in this version of the class, every week is a completely different person doing something completely different. My job in the middle of that anarchy is basically just to kind of yell neuroscience and creativity and emotion and other kinds of things that I study with brain scanners to produce a kind of semblance. But the main point of it is just to stretch students through stories that are coming at them from different angles. Your class is basically the intense with a brain scanner version of my podcast is what it sounds like. That's exactly right. Two heads, one mind, basically. Partly that is, of course, because we've read Gladwell. I don't think there's any denying that, that you and I were much less interesting people before we read Gladwell. And the moment that we read Gladwell, suddenly we became our current selves. But I think it's also that through a mix of luck and other things, We've just had the chance to be confident and comfortable in ourselves and have creative lives. The great tragedy of the way so much of America and the world works right now is people are just forced into these institutional structures where you kind of have to do what you're told by somebody else to comply to this or that or the other thing. You know, I work at a university where almost the entire university is administration of some kind. And all of them have to use these graphs and tables. They sit all day at computers, like checking boxes and saying what classroom is this and what protocol has been. And it drives them all crazy. And I'm like, we're an institution of learning. Why are we destroying the minds of 90% of our staff by forcing them to do these things? And I just think you and I are lucky. And because we're lucky, we get to be the 10% or whatever that do cool stuff like your podcast. This gets to one of the questions that I was going to ask you. You have obviously an incredibly deep understanding of literature, deeper than most people, deeper than maybe any person, but deeper than certainly 99% of people who read books. When you're reading something, you must be seeing things that other people don't see, seeing structural things, seeing, as you call them, literary inventions that are doing certain things. And does that enhance your reading of literature or does it detract from it or did it detract from it when you were studying it and does it enhance it now? How do you feel about that? It depends. 
It depends in the sense that if I've seen something that I've already seen before, then I'm much less excited by it than your average person is. But if somebody comes along with something new, I'm able to recognize much faster than most people that it's really new. Because I mean, I have this giant encyclopedia in my head. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is really groundbreaking. And then I then have a kind of head explosion while everyone else around me is like, yeah, this is kind of interesting. I'm like, you have no idea. This is like remaking the universe. This has never happened before. The fun thing about working with literature, I think, is there are lots of those books out there. It's true that I do know a lot about literature, and I have kind of figured out a lot of the techniques in terms of how it works. But almost every semester when I teach, there are at least two or three books that come into the classroom that blow my mind in some way that a student will just bring it up and be like, what is going on? This is amazing. And that's really the joy and the pleasure of it is to be able, I think, at a certain level, the more you know the more you're able to appreciate the incredible genius and creativity that goes into it, as opposed to just being like, oh, yeah, it's all pretty good. I encounter some Gladwell haters, too, like you were mentioning before. And I think one of the things people sleep on with Gladwell and don't notice about him is that what an amazing writer he is, because he writes these books that are deceptively nonfiction. And they, of course, they are nonfiction. They're deceptively informative, but they're structured in such a brilliant way people maybe don't realize how much craft there is in doing it that way. Look, one of the things that has happened in the modern world is that we have associated writing with language. And so we tend to think, oh, for someone to be a really good writer, they have to be using really fancy words all the time. They have to like big, weird words. The sentences have to be this, that, and the other thing, you know, and it's got to make my head hurt and confuse me. And Gladwell is completely the opposite. I mean, I can't remember the opening sentence of Outliers. It could have been written, I think, by like a three-year-old. He uses these very simple sentences over and over and over again, basic adjectives, basic nouns. And so people say, oh, this is so simple. This is so easy, so on and so forth. But you're right. It's the storytelling structure that's amazing. And really what he's doing here is he's saying, I don't think language should be a barrier to entry. I think anyone should be able to get into this and have their mind expanded. And it shouldn't be about language because language is actually a commodity in our culture. And language is something you get from going to like the richest schools with the biggest encyclopedias, the heftiest dictionaries. And I'm going to write something that you can just pick off the shelf and use to explode your own mind. And that's what makes him a genius. He's also... Just in my interactions with him, which are limited, I don't want to pretend like I'm Malcolm Gladwell's friend or hanging out, but in my interactions with him, he's an incredibly empathetic and curious listener. He's able to leave himself and get into with enormous fascination whatever he's doing. And that's one of the reasons why people, I think, have a hard time oftentimes pinning down his arguments and say, well, what are you actually saying here? What's going on? And it's because actually what Gladwell is about is not an argument or an idea. It's about the leap into something else. It's about the stretch or the development. And that curiosity and that empathy is, in my view, both the sign of genius and also both the sign of what we're all capable of, because we could all be a genius. I mean, we could all have that ability to get out of ourselves. And that's really what we need more of. And so that's why I love his works. I think they give you on the page how his mind works, but in a very simple and accessible way that allows your mind to work that way, too. It's sort of like linguistic minimalism. The first person I'm aware of to employ this style consciously is Douglas Hofstetter, who wrote famously Godel Escherbach in the 80s, right? Godel Escherbach is a bit technical, but it's totally readable by anyone who has a 
12th grade reading level. And he describes his style that way. He uses a Peanuts cartoon. I don't remember exactly the phrase, but it's something like he looks at the clouds and he sees clouds. That it's sort of meat and potatoes. And him and Dennett are very readable, but their ideas are as profound as Schopenhauer. From 100 years ago, these texts are impenetrable, even to the smartest, most learned people in the world. And Dennett and Hofstad are able to do it in this really easy way. So was Gladwell. But music in the 20th century took that turn as well. Someone like Steve Reich is the intellectual heir of Beethoven, Mozart, and Schubert 200 years later, but his music is very simple. He writes music that is meant to be clapped or played on claves. Yes, we can use all 96 of these instruments at full volume to one effect, but we can also create a really beautiful effect with two people on a stage and two sticks. I see them as very similar, that there's a lot of depths we can plumb with the mind that we don't have to necessarily use all of this academic language that we've developed. Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest with you, life is not that complicated. Listen to people, be nice to them, realize that you're going to die. And then as a result of that, you should have low ego. Humans just get into the problem that we're not satisfied with the simplicity of life. And then we're just constantly looking for complexity elsewhere as a way of giving us a sense of kind of like affirmation or wonder or something beyond. And I do think a lot of the challenge of life is just to accept it's not that complicated. Most of the answers are right in front of us. Just like we all know, we should go to the gym more. We should not eat that chocolate bar. We should eat the apple. I mean, it's just not that complicated. But as a human being, our brains have evolved to always be dissatisfied. There's an obvious reason for that, which is that if you're satisfied, you sit around, you get eaten. Oh, it's so nice here on this tree. And then you're eaten. Whereas if you're like the anxious monkey in the tree, you're like, what could happen to me? And you're more likely to survive. So we've all kind of inherited this restlessness, this anxiety, all these kinds of things. And that makes us incapable of accepting the simple things that we know to be the case. And so I think a lot of the value of great philosophy and great music and great storytelling is to satisfy both those things at the same time, is to kind of fill our head with a sense of wonder. There is more, because it's kind of magical that we're using these simple instruments to make this music, while at the same time, not making it overcomplicated in a way that actually takes it out of our experience. So yeah, I totally agree. I will also say, however, just honestly, philosophy needed to do something, because I mean, philosophy basically became useless after the early 20th century. I mean, analytic philosophy had its heyday and it was like, this is going to be it. And then very quickly it was like, actually, this is not going to be it. We're doing meta-ethics. What is the point of meta-ethics? And then it was like, what are we doing anymore? And I do think that there needed to be this sense of, okay, we have to actually get back to problems that people understand. And to get back to problems that people understand, we actually have to hitch readers back into philosophy. And how do we do that? We talk to the general public rather than doing what Kant did, which is like retreat into his study with his enormous brain and be like, there are two realities. Let's talk to people. Let's find out what the world is actually like by having these conversations. So I think that's where a lot of that move comes from. And I think it's a very salutary move because I think philosophy is useful, but I think philosophy like everything human, is only useful in human context. We are just not capable of using philosophy to find God because we're not God. So we should use philosophy to do human things. I'm looking at one of the books propping up my computer is I Have Landed, the collection of Stephen Jay Gould essays. And so I'm thinking of spandrels. I think about this in music all the time, that in the 19th century, philosophy got lost in spandrels of concepts that you needed to prop up ideas that you weren't going to get another way, but it was, you should have thrown the concepts away. Like we didn't need to get into meta ethics. That was not necessary. Probably ethics was a great idea. We're sort of starting to get it back. And music took the same turn, at least concert music, where too much weird stuff happening that was not entertaining anyone. This is brilliant. And you're completely right. What happens when a method, instead of solving the problems that the method was designed to solve, it starts to be used to solve the method's own problems. 
the byproducts of the method then become the thing that the method starts to work on. You start to get these increasing levels of meta redundancy. And I agree, that's the point where the method needs to be thrown away. The challenge of life is that once you've mastered the method and you've gotten good at answering the problems, you then have an academic job and you're like, this is pretty nice. I'm going to spend my entire life just answering these meta questions that come out of my method. And there's no push to do anything. And it's the same with most areas of life is the push goes away. And that's why I think the general public has to come in and be like, you're being useless, man. Talk to me. Listen to me. My life is the problem. And too much of the world today is offering old answers to new problems. There's been this revival of Marxism. I'm not opposed to Marx. I'm not a capitalist. But the idea that Marxism is going to solve our problems, it's like we already tried that. And so I think that need to actually listen to the moments, that I think comes from listening to people. People forget that Marxism is a debunked method of looking at history. That's what it is. It is an idea that Marx had that has been proven wrong empirically. People use it as a dog whistle for political things they don't agree with. But I don't think there are many Marxists out there because it would be a bit like being a flat earther. Yeah, Karl Popper completely debunks Marxism. Absolutely. However, I do think there are actually quite a number of Marxists out there because I inhabit the academy. The academy is full of this attitude that somehow we have to engage in these kinds of like wholesale structural economic projects. And those are projects that I agree with completely logically. I mean, I think Marx might have been the most logical person in history. The problem is that the world and humans are not logical. When you apply logic to a problem that can't be solved by logic, you just get carnage and disaster. If you could replace humans with computers, we would all be Marxists and it would be great. It would work magnificently. Hooray. This is the great tragedy, I think, in general, of highly logical people, of which I'm fortunate not to be one of them. But, you know, highly logical people go around, they see the problems clearly, they have answers for them. Those answers involve things like justice, usually, and then humanity arrives and annihilates them. But again, back to Gladwell, <laughs> this is Gladwell's point, I think, is that life is not really to be found in generalities. And we always want to keep telling these general stories and have general answers to everything. And people keep wanting to go back to these stories, but it's actually found in the dirt and the grit and the minute and the particular and all that kind of stuff that lays outside the camera lens. And at first that seems irritating. At first you're like, oh, why couldn't humans all just be logical? Or why couldn't we all follow these patterns or it would all be simple? And then you realize that if life was like that, it would be so boring. And that actually, if you were God and you had created that universe, you would create another universe that was filled with creativity and a little bit of anarchy and mess and chaos because that's where the pain comes from, but that's also where the fun comes from. Man, Angus is a fun guy to talk to. What we're going to be doing for season two is when I have an author on who's got a book out currently, we're going to do one episode about a book that they picked and then one episode about their book. So we'll let them promote their book and talk about their book because that's also really interesting. I started this podcast mainly because I wanted to hear people talk about things that they weren't necessarily known for, but it's also fun to have them talk about their book. So most of the authors who we have on are going to be two episodes. It'll be one where we talk about the book that they chose, which you just heard, and one where they talk about the book that they wrote, which is going to be Angus's episode next week. And I promise you it is every bit as interesting and compelling. And it's especially fun if you've already read Wonderworks or listened to the Judith Dupre episode that we did about Wonderworks which, as I said, is linked in the description. See you next week with more Angus Fletcher. After that, we're going to have Lisa Battelle, who is a professor of religion at USC, and we read an ancient Irish epic called The Toyn, I think. So next week is mostly me pronouncing 
Gaelic words wrong and her correcting me, but it's also a lot of interesting storytelling in there. See you next week. Bye. Book Society Podcast is hosted by me, Lucas Cantor, at Book Society Pod on Instagram. It's edited and produced by Santiago Ramones, who has his own podcast called Bit Depth, which I highly recommend. There's an episode with me on there, which is how we met. You can reach me at my website, lucascantormusic.com. I would love to talk to you, so send me an email or shoot me a text even. We'll talk about books and we'll hang out and it'll be great. can't have two plus two equal five unless you're Descartes God. <laughs>